Well, again, uh, we are continuing a six-week series thinking about uh, primarily the local church, but the church. Uh, what is it, this church that Jesus is building according to the New Testament? So if you would, you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, starting verse 15. That'll be on page 799 if you're using the Pew Bibles. Last week, we considered how Jesus began speaking about the church, his ecclesia, his assembly. Uh, he only uses the word twice. The first passage is Matthew 18, or 16, rather, and then the second time is here in Matthew 18. So we're going to be continuing to look further into that. Uh, and for those of you who didn't know, we're doing a Sunday school that's connected to this, so you can come and bring your questions, and we're seeking to discuss them uh, in that early time. Today will be a fair bit of Bible because I'm going to be taking us through this progress of how it was that Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom to Peter and the apostles and how they transitioned to local churches. But in this passage, as you'll see, Jesus' intention was always that the local church would be the one with the authority of the keys of the kingdom. So let's read here, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. And again, as we are receivers and responders, I will say, thank, this is the word of the Lord, and we all respond with thanks be to God, thanking him for his holy word. Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church, the assembly. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for it, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I read a joke recently about this topic of discipline. I thought it'd be good to open with, because discipline is not always a happy topic. I said, if laziness were an Olympic discipline, I'd want to finish fourth. That way, I wouldn't have to climb the medals podium. <laughs> See, if you're anything like me, I, I guess there's areas of your life where being disciplined comes naturally. There's just there's certain areas of your life where you just tend to be very disciplined in some areas. And yet, in other areas, you'd rather come in fourth so you don't have to climb the podium, if we're being honest. Uh, and some people are phenomenally disciplined in many, many more areas of life. Um, my grandfather, my dad's dad, I never met the man, um, but I heard stories of him being a rigidly disciplined man. He was a Marine Corps gunnery sergeant. And my dad told me that growing up, he woke up every single day and he did 1,000 push-ups and 1,000 sit-ups and sometimes more. He was just an incredibly regimented, disciplined, hardworking man. At least he was disciplined except for in areas of his temper where he tended to be violently abusive whenever things didn't go the way that he thought. I think if we're honest, we're somewhere between those poles. There's areas where we find discipline comes naturally and easily for us. But then there's other areas where we tend to lack discipline. What about for you? What are those areas where you find discipline comes easy? What about those ones where it is quite a bit harder? I would say, and I will argue through this sermon, that Christians are called to the lifelong work of growing to be more disciplined. 
particularly more disciplined in our following of Jesus and his teachings. See, that word, disciple and discipleship, have that same common root where we get discipline. They're all connected. But, as we saw last week, and I hope to intend to continue to show this week, is biblical discipleship, biblical discipline, is inextricably communal. It is bound up with the local church, with being committed members in a local church. You see, the Bible, we tend to read the Bible like a singular book to us. Uh, we, we tend to read every one of the you's in the Bible as me, so I respond to it. But almost every single you in the New Testament is a y'all. It's the Greek Southern, you know, the y'all, or you-ins, y'all-thems. Uh, they're almost all corporate because they're in the Bible the Christian life is a communal life. It is a life together. And so our Christian discipleship and discipline are communal realities. We need each other for Christian growth. So hence, the argument of today's sermon is this. Jesus cleanses his church through local members disciplining each other in love. Jesus cleanses. We could add grows, but we're going to focus on that in a couple weeks, Lord willing. He cleanses his church through local members disciplining each other in love. But again, before we get there, I want to show you how the argument I made last week continues on. Last week I argued Jesus handed the keys of the kingdom to Peter and the apostles. But here clearly in Matthew 18, Jesus envisions the local church having the authority to bind and loosen members in and out of their fellowship. So with that, like I said, we'll be doing some Bible work. Um, you can start turning to Acts 5. We'll put the three points of the sermon up on the board. And they are this, the apostolic key-wielding, Acts 5 and 8, transitioning the churches, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 2, and then we'll circle back to Matthew 18. So Acts chapter 5. We will get there eventually. While you turn there, let me trace a couple of these points. If you're using the Pew Bibles, that's on page 886, by the way. So Jesus handed the keys of the kingdom, the authority to build the church to Peter and the apostles. And last week, we saw then in Acts chapter 2, Peter proclaims the gospel, and there was a bunch of people who said, what must we do? And the response was, repent, be baptized, and be added to their number. That is, the call on all people, when they hear the gospel, they're to repent, to be baptized, and to be added as a member in a local church where they too can partake in wielding the keys of the kingdom. But what's interesting is there was no business meeting in Acts chapter 2. Peter wields the keys unilaterally. He just brings them in. He proclaims the gospel. He and the boys seem to baptize them, and they bring him into the church. That's this special authority given to them. We also read about this in John 20, 23, where Jesus says to the apostles, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. I mean, you hear that. They have the authority to forgive or not forgive sin. That's a special authority given to the apostles. Uh, and in some measure, it was, it was passed on via the keys to local churches, as we'll see. But that's the authority on display here in Acts chapter 5. Uh, see, in Acts chapter 5, the, the early church is growing. And during this transition period, the apostles are still wielding the keys unilaterally. That's why Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. They had a special authority. And Acts chapter 5 is the first ever church discipline recorded in the Bible. A man and his wife, Ananias and Sapphira. You see, they sold some land. And in the context, what we find out is they sold some land and they gave part of the proceeds to the church. And they told them that they gave it all. 
The reason for this in the context is because they want a name for themselves. They, they want to kind of have, have a role. They're trying to buy their, their selves some role in the church as it were. And so that's what they do. But Peter sees right through it. So look at Acts 5, verses 3 through 6. Acts 5, 3 through 6. And Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all those who heard what had happened. And they carry him out. See, I call this apostolic, Holy Spirit-led church discipline. Uh, Peter unilaterally declares, via the empowering of the Holy Spirit, you have lied to God because you've lied to his church. Remember, wherever his church is on earth, Jesus is in their midst. You have lied to God. Therefore, the men will carry out your body. This is pretty bold early church discipline. We are all thankful it doesn't typically work that way anymore. But it continues on, and his wife does the exact same thing. Well, there's another version of this that we can find in Acts 8. So flip over a couple pages, Acts 8, look at, start at verse 12, we'll get there in a moment. But in Acts 8, what's happening in context again is that the church there in Jerusalem was not obeying Jesus because he told them to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. They're just they're having too much fun. They're having just too much wonderful church building there in Jerusalem. And so God brings a persecution to, to cause them to go. And Philip is one of the ones who goes. Philip goes, and he's preaching the gospel. And as he's there preaching the gospel, people start to show up, and, and they're, they're listening, and they're repenting and believing. Now, this is connected to something I said last week. Jesus is building his end-time assembly perfectly. He, he, he never makes a mistake. He only ever builds living stones that are living stones and will be living stones to eternity. But Jesus uses local churches to build his church via the means of preaching the gospel and baptism and repentance into membership. And local churches can and do err. That's what we get here in Acts chapter 8. So what happens is Philip goes up, he preaches the gospel, people are starting to resp respond and repent, and then start looking there in verse 9. We read, now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. Why? Because the keys of the kingdom were given to Peter and the apostles. And so in the book of Acts, Peter has to be the one who validates every next step in the mission. So he shows up in Samaria. Yep, this is real gospel work. I'm using the keys. I'm binding and loosing and building a church here. He has the authority to do though. He does the same thing in Acts 10 with Cornelius the Gentile. Peter has this unilateral authority to wield the keys. And so he does. Notice, Philip is planting a church there. He preaches the gospel. He baptizes this guy, Simon. Ah, but then the story continues on because Peter gets there and he prays and they receive the Holy Spirit as he's wielding the keys, confirming the church in that area. Now look at Acts 8, 17. 
So Peter does this. Then Peter and John place their hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. He said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And Simon answered, Oh, pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Do you see what just happened? Peter unilaterally wielded the keys and excommunicated Simon. He said, That local church, they heard your testimony, they baptized you, they brought you in, but you're not actually a Christian. And he removes him. Why? Well, because Peter has the authority that Jesus gave him. He can do that. And he does that and says, You are clearly not a Christian. The church heard your testimony and they baptized you in, but you're not a part of Jesus' church. I hope you repent and you truly become converted. That's what's happening here. So as with Acts 2, when Peter unilaterally wields the keys to bring people in, he also can wield them to bring people out. But it also shows us that local churches can and will err because there are no perfect churches because churches are full of people who are stumbling saints. So that means, friends, that we approach the topic of church discipline humbly and gently. We, we approach it realizing that we can and will make mistakes. So we seek to be cautious. Think of Proverbs 17, 9. Whoever would foster love covers over an offense, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. Oh, consider Paul later write, Galatians 6, 1. If someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Or 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, so the first step of this topic of church discipline is to realize we can make mistakes. So we approach it humbly and patiently. We could list many other verses. One Baptist pastor uh, from long ago put it like this very well. He says, friend, if your brother does you a wrong, you should think how liable you are to do that wrong. And remember, that you may, under temptation, do the wrong that he has done. Think how tenderly you would be dealt with under such circumstances. So see, friends, the default mode of the Christian heart on this topic of discipline should always bend towards gentleness, towards forbearance, towards letting love cover a multitude of sins. And yet, James 5.20 says, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins, because sin leads to death. So those are the guardrails, friends. We cannot ignore sin and let it continue on, but we also have to approach it gently and humbly. Jesus is building his end-time assembly. He does it perfect. He only ever adds those who will never be removed later. We know that because he says he builds the church with those with whom the gates of Hades cannot overcome, which means resurrected people, people who've overcome death, They've been built into his assembly. But local churches, well, we might add people that then later we come back and say, like Simon, I don't think they're a Christian after all. So Jesus uses both local churches, wielding the keys to bring people into membership, and then also lovingly, patiently, forbearing with sin, and then sometimes having to follow up with church discipline. And this lovingly overlooking and gentle confrontation, the balancing of the two, it begins in the home, friends. So husbands, 
Do you seek to let love cover a multitude of sins and shortcomings and foibles and failures in your wife and in your children? Do you default to forgiveness even and forbearance? Do you seek to go out of your way to slow down and listen? When you see something that has to be addressed, is your default mode to address it humbly, lovingly, patiently, assuming it was a misunderstanding, in care and concern? Do you pause first and remember how the Lord has forgiven you? Wives, do you seek first to bear patiently with your husband when he comes home and he doesn't start helping you with the kids who have exhausted you all day and who you just cannot take another moment of? Are you willing to overlook his carelessness in that moment, which it probably is carelessness, and assume that maybe he had a really hard day and needs a minute? Are you able to bear that extra weight some days and to bear it in such a way that isn't going to make him know there's going to be punishment later? Maybe for all Christians. How willing are you to allow disagreements to pass by in love? Uh, Paul wrote it to the elders, but it's really applicable to all Christians. He said, the Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. And he goes on to say, patiently enduring evil. Well, friends, if we're to patiently endure evil, how much more should we patiently endure disagreements, uh, differences of opinion and approaches? So I hope you see, Jesus gave his authority to the apostles, and they wielded that authority to build the church, to bind and loosen. And they had the authority to do so unilaterally. But Jesus said that the local church was going to have the key. So how did that transition take place? Well, that's our second point, transitioning to the churches. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll see how this worked itself out. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So in this letter, Paul is writing to a local church. And he gets to this point in the letter, and he addresses an issue of church discipline. So we will go ahead and read 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 18, or 1 through 8, 1 through 8 to begin with. And here's Paul dealing with a difficult case of church discipline. He says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this. So, when you are assembled, I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven, a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread unleavened and with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So you see this very vivid situation, this illustration. Paul writes to this church saying, there's a man who is doing something even the pagans don't tolerate. He's to be having an affair with his mother-in-law. We don't know if it's because his dad died or what, but it is clearly not a good situation. And yet the church has refused to deal with it. 
Maybe they just said, well, that's not really my business. Uh, Maybe they said something like, well, you know, what people do in the privacy of their own homes, I don't really have a right to speak into that. Paul disagrees. Paul says the church absolutely must speak into this situation. Again, our discipleship, our Christian life is not an individual thing that you can do all by yourself. It requires a commitment to other Christians whom God has placed in your life to speak into your life. And that's what's taking place here. Now, Paul had the authority to do what Peter did and unilaterally remove the man. But he's handing the baton of the keys off to that local church. He says, I've already judged him. And I'm not there with you physically, but I'm there in spirit. Just as Jesus is there in spirit, you, when you assemble, you need to wield the keys and hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Do you see the argument? We're watching the handoff take place. Jesus gave it to Peter in Matthew 16, and we saw the apostles wield that authority through Acts, and now we're seeing it finally be handed to local churches where it's going to continue to reside. Paul says he has spoken from his part, but now it's the responsibility of the church because those local churches are established, and they're the ones who bear the keys, who wield them. So just as Jesus commanded all the way back in Matthew 18, finally that's coming into reality. That church needs to speak. But notice, he's to hand him over for the destruction of the flesh, which is this. All corrective church discipline, friends, aims at, whether this is in marriage or between friends or before the church, all corrective church discipline is aiming at repentance and restoration. It is always aiming at seeking to turn the erring brother from their ways, as James 5.20 said, to seek to cover over a multitude of sins that could continue to carry that person off. But it is also aiming, as Paul says here, to cleanse the church. So he goes on to say, don't you know, a little lump of leaven leavens the whole lump, as the other translation says. So clean out the leaven. Sin is like leaven or yeast in a lump of dough. It works its way through the whole lump until it is all permeated. And friends, if a church stops obeying Jesus' command regarding church discipline, then it allows a little tiny bit of yeast to begin to spread. And it might be really slow, and there might be all sorts of other ways that the church goes about trying to keep it small, but it will work its way through the church. And the simple fact of the matter is, personal sin is never personal. Our seemingly individual sins that seem very private and should only take place in my bedroom or or wherever, no, they are public. They will infest the rest of the church. So Christians should be those who want accountability, who long for it. Do you see how this works? And not only should we want it and long for it, we should see it as a good gift from God because that's what Hebrews 12 says it is. He says God disciplines his children and his act of disciplining them proves that they are his children. Notice this. Christian, if you have never been disciplined by God, probably through a spouse or a friend seeking to correct you, then you are an illegitimate child. Why? Because all Christians sin. We continue to. First John is really clear. If you say you have no sin, well, you're a liar. You're not really a Christian. So proof that we are Christians is the fact that there is someone in our life at some time who has said, are you sure? I don't think Jesus would have you do that. And that person loved you well, and you've been corrected. So not only does the act of discipline, whether in a marriage or, or in a church, prove that you are a child of God when you respond rightly to that discipline, 
if you spurn that discipline, you're spurning God's fatherly relationship because that's what he does. Now, to be sure, this talk of discipline makes us nervous because we all know stories of those who have radically abused this. I, based off of their fruit, I have no reason to believe that Westboro Baptist is a church and it has true Christians. The Lord knows, I don't know. But based off of their fruit, of their signs of God hates everything, I just have no reason to believe that they're actually Christian. And that's a perfect example of them taking to the world something that is meant to be done in love and grace and gentleness and forbearance inside a church. And Paul makes this explicit. Go read verses 9 through 13 there of 1 Corinthians 5. Paul writes, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. So notice what Paul says. First, church discipline is for the church. We should be exceedingly careful about taking our, our standards and imposing them on the world. God will judge those outside of the church. That's his job. He will deal with that. But for those inside the church who claim to be brothers and sisters and who continue on in unrepentant sin, he says, have nothing to do with them. Do not even eat with such a one. Now, there's some, all sorts of challenges and differences of opinion of how that will quietly work out. Throughout church history, there's been some times where shunning was part of the discipline, where someone would, would be shunned and they'd be removed from the community. There are arguments for that. I will argue that is connected with the Lord's Supper in particular, but we'll, we'll get to that in just a moment. For here, though, I would say this. The first step we see is, I think Christians, we have to be exceedingly careful that we are not those who are acting as though we need to shout down the world like the Westboro type. We need to be exceedingly careful that we don't put ourselves in the stool of judge. Yes, we know the truth, and yes, we are called to live that way. But that's why Peter will go on to say, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. So our message to the world is not street preaching of you're going to hell if you disagree with me. That is true. But that's not our message. That's not what he's been called us to. No, Christians, we are, 2 Corinthians 5, ministers of reconciliation. We are ambassadors who carry not our message, but God's message. And God's message is that we are to declare to all those that God, the Son, took on flesh. You see, friend, that he lived the life that you should have lived and I should have lived, and yet we fail to live. And then he died the death that we deserved for our sin against God. See, our message is that Christ and him crucified is the call for all those who would hear it and believe it to repent and trust in Christ to be joined to his people and to walk out their discipleship with that church. That's our message. Our message is one of hope. We leave judgment to God. And that's why Paul challenges them here. Don't judge those outside of the church. Deal with those inside of the church. And Paul's charge to turn that man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh then, I would say, is him saying remove him from membership in the local church. Remove him from the privileges and blessings that we all share when we gather to take the Lord's Supper. When we come together and say, his body was broken for us. His blood was poured out for us. And Paul says in that passage, 
in that moment, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And what he's saying is they can't proclaim the Lord's death. It's for them until he comes, at least not based on how they're living. Now, not all commentators agree, but I think this situation here is picked up in 2 Corinthians 2. So we find out, did the church obey? I think this is what is being picked up in 2 Corinthians 2. You can turn there. Starting at verse 5, whether or not this passage here in 2 Corinthians 2, 5 is specifically dealing with the guy that they put out in 1 Corinthians 5, there's one important thing we need to glean about how a local church is to function from here. So 2 Corinthians 5, verses uh, 2, uh, 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 8 says, if anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him, so they punished somebody, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. So again, whether or not this is the guy from 1 Corinthians 5, what you see there is really important. Church discipline, so it was removed from the church and it said it was done by the majority. The majority of whom? It has to be the members in a local church. Those marked off and numbered people who have the authority of Jesus to speak on his behalf for binding and loosing, to bringing in and now to bring him out, and to restore even after church discipline. Because the goal of all church discipline is reconciliation. The point then is that the keys of the kingdom went from Jesus to Peter and the apostles like Paul, and they handed down to the church. And the church speaks by the majority. They evaluate people and their profession, and they welcome them in when they confess the true Jesus as the Christ died for our sins, and they have trusted in him. They're baptized and added to that church. And when that person continues on and does not repent, they're removed from that church by the majority. That's the point. Now, before we turn to our last point, though, there's one other aspect of this, 1 Corinthians 5, kind of combo that's worth thinking about. Uh, Paul spoke of there's the, the kind of sin that takes place there that they were being called on immediately to do, right? So did you see 1 Corinthians 5 doesn't quite follow the Matthew 18 pattern. He doesn't say, you know, go to this person and go to them again. He says, remove him now. Turn him over to Satan. So are there two different paths to church discipline? Now it's a yes, there are two different paths to church discipline. And here's why. 1 Corinthians 5 speaks of a sin that not even the pagans do. And so the church is being called on to protect the name of Jesus and move swiftly and decisively because the egregious and public nature of this sin is bringing shame on Jesus. So the kinds of modern sins that would fall into this camp for us today would typically be those that are bound up with severe criminal activity. A couple years ago, you may have heard about the man in Georgia who went and shot up some massage parlors and he murdered eight people. Well, he was a member of a local Baptist church and they did exactly what the Bible said they should have done. The very next Sunday, they called a special meeting, and they all voted unanimously to remove him as a member of the church, seeking to protect the name of Jesus, to saying we cannot affirm that person's profession of faith because people who profess faith in Jesus don't murder people. So it's been wisely said, in every case of church discipline, the honor of Christ and the interests of his cause are more or less affected. So that's why we seek to protect the name of Jesus through church discipline. 
Now, on a practical level, if you pay much attention to kind of Christian news and stuff, you're doubtlessly aware of all these reports in Southern Baptist churches uh, of covering up abuse and all these other things. I'm just going to start with the assumption that in most cases, the problem there was balancing, well, wait a minute, we're supposed to be those who are forgiving and who accept someone who repents. And so I think that they were probably wrestling between these two commands, that we're to be those who repent and show grace and that we're to forgive. And so they tended to cover up. And I would just say that there are certain sins that require the church to act decisively and quickly and allow repentance to be played out in its fruit over time. And things like abuse are those. There should not be second chances. There should be removal. There's nothing that says you can't bring them back later if true repentance has been shown. But the church needs to protect the name of Jesus. And it speaks quickly and says, as far as we can tell right now, we cannot affirm this person's profession of faith because of the kind of abuse that they are doing. So that's how I would say those things should be working themselves out in the life of a local church. But what about the other path of church discipline, the Matthew 18 one? Well, flip back to Matthew 18 and page 799, again, if you're using the Pew Bibles, and we'll get to our last point, the love of correction. The love of correction. Now, I already read it, but by way of reminder, this passage is the only place where Jesus uses the word ecclesia other than Matthew 16, and it's the only place he uses binding and loosing except in Matthew 16. So it's clearly Jesus talking about the fact that he builds his assembly through binding and loosing the work of the keys of the kingdom. And now in 18, he's saying that work is going to be given to churches. And so that's why they are to get together and to wield the keys, to bind on earth as it is bound in heaven. Now, the question though that this passage raises up is, well, who gets to speak for Jesus? I mean, who gets to be the one who wields the keys, right? So the question was asked in Sunday school. It's a good question and a common one. It says, well, where two or three gather, there I am in their midst. Is that referring to the fact that a subset of Christians has the authority to wield the keys? Well, the answer clearly has to be no, because otherwise you could have two or three Christians excommunicating two or three other Christians every time there's a disagreement. So it doesn't work. Uh, moreover, the logic of the passage is very clear. Jesus is handing the keys from himself to a ecclesia, an assembly. And the first step of church discipline is to go one person and then to try to take two or three. And if they still won't listen, to take it to the whole assembly. The point is that that assembly could be as small as two or three people. So I use the example in, in Sunday school as, you know, in a, a very pioneer church situation, the moment you have two people, you have Jesus there in their midst, and they speak with heaven's authority. So when they add that third person, and they're baptized and brought into membership, they're just not two people on the plane somewhere. They say, thus says King Jesus, you have the right profession. You are added to his church. They speak with heaven's authority. That's the point. And so if you have a church as small as three people and one of them persists in unrepentant sin, the other two, when they say, no, we have to remove you, they speak with heaven's authority. That's, that's the point. Well, as I mentioned here, uh, Jesus here is commanding all Christians then to be a part of his church. Why? Because Jesus is building his church in time assembly through local churches, adding members. So here's the point, friends. If you are not a member of a local church, then you cannot obey Jesus' command here to wield the keys of the kingdom, right? 
Because only those marked off from the world in a particular place can obey Jesus and be a part of the y'all, the assembly who says, I'm sorry, friend, we can no longer affirm your profession of faith in church discipline. So by parity of reasoning, Jesus requires church membership. As I said in Sunday school class, he doesn't require all the little wonderful details that we like to put in there. There's, there's matters of wisdom and prudence. But we have to know who in this place speaks for Jesus. Who in this place has the final say of heaven's authority to say you have the right profession or you are living contrary to that profession. That's why I say Jesus requires us to be active members in a local church. Now, to answer the question here, what is removing someone from membership? You know, Jesus says here to treat them as they would a pagan. Well, I say, again, that word is really Gentile. Treat them like a Gentile. And again, Jewish men would have known precisely what the illustration is being used for. Because for Jewish men, what were Gentiles? They were unclean. They were those who were not allowed to come to the feasts of Israel. And so for new covenant members then, church discipline is the removal of that person from the regular participation in the church's feast, the Lord's Supper. It's not telling them they can't attend church. Some have taken it that way. I don't think that's right. No, the the number one place we want these people to be is where they're going to hear the gospel and repent and believe. Here's a real-life example that happened in one of my pastorates earlier. There was a family who was very close to Jess and I. Uh, I mean, their girls were like goddaughters to us, you know. And, and so we watched her grow up, and we brought her into the church that I planted and loved this family a long time. And she got to be in her, you know, very early 20s, I think. She was still living at home, but she stopped coming home at night. And no contact. So her mom's just working with her and talking to her and just trying to lovingly restore her. What are you doing? You're going to get in trouble. Next you know, she, oh, she's kind of quasi-living with her boyfriend some, you know, one night a week or something. So then the mom brings the pastors in. And so we walk with the family. And we sit down with her and say, do you see this is going to hurt you? Do you see what's happening here? You know, let, please, if you need a place to live, if you're, you know, I get it, you're 20, you want to spread your wings, living under mom's roof is hard. Jess and I will let you come and live with us. You don't have to pay rent. Just come and live with us, but don't do that. And we pleaded with her. And she would go through cycles of repentance. So a period of about six months, we watched her slowly. She's like, ah, you're right. And she'd come back and stay at home two or three weeks, and then she'd be out again. And this happened till all of a sudden, about six months into these long, slow, patient, prayerful conversations where she stopped returning our calls and text messages. And so we took it before the church. And at a member meeting, what we said was, if you know her, reach out to her. Plead with her. She, she doesn't have to live at home if that's what she doesn't want. She can, she can live with us. I know some of you have offered to have her live with you as well. But plead with her to repent. And if she doesn't, then at our next member meeting, we are going to vote to excommune her, remove her from communion, from the Lord's Supper. And sadly, that is precisely what happened. And the church voted, and I called her, and I left her a message, and I said, we love you. We want you here every Sunday if you'll come. But we see you living in a way that contradicts what you believe about Jesus. And so we have to remove you from membership and you can't take the Lord's Supper. Well, we were really grateful because she did come fairly regularly for a while. And we were so glad. We always loved her and encouraged her and tried to pull her back in because discipline is meant to be restorative. You're seeking restoration. 
So when Jesus here gives the keys of the kingdom to local churches to speak for heaven, those speaking are informed by the rest of the Bible and how we go about seeking restoration and repentance. I know, we talk about church discipline, and it can make people nervous. But discipline, friends, is an act of love. Again, Hebrews 12, 6, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And friends, it is the most unloving thing a parent can do is to refuse to discipline their child, to consistently, formatively discipline and shape their child. Sadly, our culture turns this all on its head, and we have this idea that children need to define themselves or redefine themselves all the way down to their very core identity. But friends, we do not get to listen to and bow with and go with the culture, and we shouldn't buy the lie that discipline is mean. No, friends, To refuse to pull someone off of a train track is not love and honoring their choice. It's hatred. And that's what discipline is. It is grabbing someone away from the freight train of sin. Only a hate-filled person would ignore certain death. And friends, when we look at our fellow church members who start down a path of unrepentant sin, and it doesn't matter what you do over long, slow periods of time, They're on their way to the freight train tracks of hell. And so we seek to lovingly pull them back in. Corrective church discipline is love. It is the most loving thing you can do. And it requires some mechanism of formal membership. Well, that's the corrective part of church discipline. But there's also the formative part. And I would argue the first two steps of Jesus here in Matthew 18 are formative. You see something in somebody, so you go to them and you say, "Ah, I I don't think that's quite right. And Lord willing, they say, you know, you're right. I need to repent and turn. It happens every single week in your marriages. When one of you smarts off to the other one and the other one says, that wasn't very nice. You're like, I'm sorry. Uh, So church discipline is very normal. It happens every single day. Uh, But here's that formative element of church discipline. Just like discipline uh, of going to the gym literally forms our bodies, so spiritual disciplines are meant to form us. Well, the book that this church at Bethany Baptist used as its first kind of constitution and bylaws was called Pendleton's Baptist Church Manual. We printed a couple copies. Uh, There's two more downstairs on the piano if you, you want to look at it an old book, and it does a wonderful job on this. It has a whole section on formative church discipline. And he just does a great job. He quotes from, first, uh, or from 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7. Give all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to your virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Uh, that's just straight from Peter. And then 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are just spiritual disciplines. Well, then what Pendleton does is he applies that to the local church. And he says this, it is clear from these scriptures that Christians should be ever in a state of progressive spiritual improvement. They must not retrograde or remain stationary, but constantly advance, advancing in the divine life. And then he applies it to all different stages. He goes on to speak of those old with their gray hairs, how they should exhibit beneficial power in the ripeness of the fruits of the Spirit. Friends, with gray hairs, do you display years of seeing the fruit of the Spirit? And how do you share those with the church? Well, the the middle-aged, he says, who have physical strength, well, there to be those demonstrating what growth and spiritual strength and dependence upon the Lord looks like. 
and the young in the morning of life. They should yield to the formative discipline and become laborers in the Lord's vineyard. So kids sitting here listening, ask mom and dad, how do I grow in discipline? And each of these things Pendleton plays out and explains is how our individual life as a Christian is interwoven with the whole church. So he writes this, there should be constant growth in grace, and as the vigorous tree grows in all its parts, so should there be spiritual growth in all the members of the church. They must abound in supreme love to Christ and in fervent love for one another. Christian love is the great duty of church members, which, when faithfully performed, secures the performance of all other duties that they owe one another. What are the two commands? Love God and love each other. And part of loving someone is correcting them. Formative discipline. So members of Bethany, does your life display the kind of growth as the duty that you owe to your fellow members? See, I owe you my sanctification and vice versa because that's what a church is, a group of people who've committed to walk towards Jesus together. Oh, friends, what are those formative disciplines that you've been engaging in in your life so that you can grow and eat the strong meat of the word? How would seeing your personal discipleship as being wound together with and bound up with these members of this church sharpen you? How would that help you? Instead of seeking your, church, your, your Christian growth primarily as yourself, but seeing it with these others, how would they help you to kill sin and to grow and fight for holiness? So friends, Jesus is building his church, that in-time assembly before the throne that we are spiritually a part of now, that we are those who've come to Mount Zion, the church of the firstborn. That is his work. And he does so through local churches, preaching the word of discipling one another and loving one another, of repenting and believing together, and sometimes of loving each other through discipline. But Jesus doesn't stop there. While we are those spiritually resurrected and made new in Christ, and we will all finally physically gather at his return, in the meantime, Jesus cleanses his church through local members, disciplining each other in love, disciplining each other formatively, and disciplining each other sometimes correctively when we fail, when we are no longer following that great shepherd of the sheep. So Lord willing, in a couple weeks, Pastor Jeff will walk us through what this discipling looks like more from Ephesians 4. And then God willing, next week we will see how God's plan for this age until Jesus returns is entirely bound up with local churches and the Great Commission. So Lord willing, we'll come back and see that next time. But until then, friends, I hope you count it a great privilege to protect the name of Jesus in this place. I hope you count it a great privilege to look at your fellow church members and rejoice that you are called to love them, even to the point of correcting them, and that you are called to be loved by them to the point of being corrected by them, because the Lord disciplines every child he loves. So friends, may we be those who long for and even love the discipline of our Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that Jesus builds his church. And we thank you for how he uses local churches to do that. Uh, local churches gathered together to love each other and sometimes even to correct each other. Oh Lord, would you help us to do these things? Would you help us to do so with great forbearance and patience? 
but also with steadfastness in truth. And we pray that you would be with us as we set about this task of seeking to be your local church here in this place. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.